Welcome to the Automotive Leaders Podcast, where we help you prepare for the future by sharing stories, insights, and skills from leading voices in the automotive world with a mission to transform this industry together. I'm your host, Jan Griffiths, that passionate, rebellious farmer's daughter from Wales with over 35 years of experience in our beloved auto industry and a commitment to empowering fellow leaders to be their best authentic selves. Stay true to yourself. Be you and lead with gravitas, the hallmark of authentic leadership. Let's dive in. Today, you'll meet Paul Glantz, the co-founder and CEO of Imagine Entertainment. I wanted to find a guest for this show who truly understood the authentic leadership trait of resilience. And who better than the leader of a movie theater business during a pandemic? Paul shares openly his thoughts and actions and how he totally underestimated the pandemic. Paul is an authentic leader. He lives his life and leads in accordance with his values. He's very much focused on giving to others, giving back to others, whether it's through philanthropy with other organizations or to his employees, to his business, to his clients, to his stakeholders, you will see this as a theme coming through in this podcast and in this interview. He's a humble man, and he has absolutely no problem sharing his mistakes. He sees the value in putting these lessons out on the table and talking about them and empowering others by leading this way. You'll learn about that fateful night to the opening night that actually made him cry. You'll also learn about the way that he starts his day, which might not be as you expected. So much to learn in this episode. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jan. It's a pleasure to be here. Paul, the first time I saw you, you were a cardboard cutout. Well, we call that thin paw. <laughs> it's not very often I get to say that, right? That's right. <laughs> um, I saw you, of course, at an imagined theater. But more recently, we met at the Detroit Economic Club Young Leaders Conference at the Motor City Casino. And I had never met you before. And we had we had a conversation after I closed the keynote, and obviously there was a connection there with authentic leadership and my leadership message. But what struck me more than anything was the warmth that you feel when you somebody meets you for the first time. It's not, uh, hey, I'm meeting a CEO of a major corporation. And you know you're you're too good for anybody to talk to. You, you're very you've, you're very warm. You're very inviting. You make people feel safe around you. We had a lovely conversation, and we didn't really we didn't really know each other that well. And and I thought, wow, this is a leader with gravitas. This is an authentic leader, and so that's why you're on the show. 
Well, I'm glad you felt that way. And, um, you know, there is that old saying about uh, you won't remember what somebody told you or how they said it, but you'll remember how you feel. And so I'm delighted to think that um, you felt that way about uh, our chance meeting at that event. Yes. And now I get to ask you the question because I want to know, Paul Glantz, what is your story? Let's go right back to the beginning. You know, I am the luckiest guy on earth. I was born to two loving parents. And so I would tell you that all the success in my life is born out of the fact that, you know, my folks love me. And uh, I was their only child. And they told me I could be anything I wanted to be. And, you know, when you're told that frequently enough, you begin to believe it. And so it became, I would say, a self-fulfilling prophecy, though neither of my folks finished college. Uh, my dad went to trade school. My mom worked as a lab technician before most moms worked. Uh, I never knew that I had a choice but to go to college. And so uh, when little Polly grew up and it was time to go off to college, um, there wasn't a trust fund set aside for him because it didn't come exactly from a moneyed family. But um, I was very fortunate that I had not been a model citizen in my high school years, but I maintained good grades. And so I earned a scholarship to Wayne State University where I studied accounting and business and thought I got a pretty good education there because uh, I was fortunate enough to pass the CPA exam at the first try. So uh, off to the races, you would think, right? Well, not quite so. You see, I didn't quite have a mentor back then. And little did I know but that I had colored outside the lines when it came to trying to enter the public accounting profession. In fact, uh, at the time, there were eight international accounting firms, plus Plant Moran and what's now UHY and several other local firms. And I was uh, turned down by eight out of eight, plus all the local firms. And um, I'd like to believe I can sometimes learn from my mistakes. And so I went back, started working my master's degree in taxation, and that uh, allowed me to recruit on campus. And lo and behold, Mr. Glantz was now coloring within the lines, and he was welcomed into the public accounting profession. <laughs> but you know, that one year sort of sabbatical, uh, when I couldn't find a job in public accounting, turned out to be a real blessing because I worked as a credit analyst at Comerica Bank. And I tell people that I learned how to read financial statements before I could put them together. And, you know, that's really important. And if you think back on my career, particularly as an entrepreneur, I've had to write business plans. I have to do cash flow projections. I have to understand the inner workings of balance sheets and income statements. And all of that stuff really was learned in my first year in banking. But interestingly enough, I was so fortunate. And, and I, I think, you know, we don't know luck of birth or, or how we're going to, you know, fare in life. But that broad base of experience that I garnered both working in banking and in public accounting, I think has really served me extremely well in my career. Mm -hmm. And so um, that continued on. I ended up uh, learning about the insurance industry. I went to work for Pulte Home Corporation uh, after my stint in public accounting. And uh, they made me a, a corporate risk manager, something I knew nothing about, but they said, well, we can take a CPA and teach them that kind of stuff. And so I learned about insurance there and had a really uh, lovely career for 27 years with a company uh, in Troy, Michigan called Proctor Financial Incorporated. And I started out as a CFO and I uh, spent my last 10 years as president of that organization. And during that time period, of course, my little entrepreneurial hobby grew up. And uh, at the time I said, well, look, I've got a, uh, a vocation and an avocation. And the movie theaters were really my avocation. 
But unlike most folks who have hobbies, say they play golf or something, I, I guess mine were a little different. Maybe I'm boring because I'm an accountant, but um, had a lot of fun growing that little entrepreneurial business over the years. And lo and behold, it is now my vocation. <laughs> yes. Yes, it most definitely is. So tell us a little bit about Imagine. I know that you're in four states now. Is that right? Yes. We have uh, our home base here in Michigan. We have a theater in uh, Wisconsin, uh, one, in Ill- one in Illinois, although we hopefully have another one coming in Illinois very soon. And just recently, we opened two in Indiana. Uh, in addition, we have a, uh, a licensee that operates under the brand uh, of Imagine in Minnesota. So um, counting um, my licensee, I guess we're in five states. So let's get right to it then, Paul. You have these movie theaters and then the pandemic hits. I mean, what, what, what do you do? One of the reasons that I, I very much wanted to talk to you for season three for the podcast is to probe into the authentic leadership trait of resilience. I cannot think of another business that was hit harder than you were hit during the pandemic. Could you tell us a little bit about the thought process and your leadership during that time? Well, I think uh, like my leadership, uh, most of the time I muddled through most of it to be candid with you. Um, I had misjudged the duration of the pandemic on several occasions, but um, I am by nature an optimist and I felt this too shall pass. And in fact, uh, during the time period that we were shut down, I don't think I've ever worked as hard as I've worked during that, you know, that duration. And it was because we had a competitor up in Grand Rapids that had declared bankruptcy in February of 2020. And we were intent on trying to acquire that organization. Now, it turned out that we were fortunate that we did not acquire substantially all that organization's assets because Uh, the carry would have been challenging because needless to say, our industry didn't quite come back as rapidly as I thought it would. But uh, we ended up acquiring four uh, locations that were formally leased by that company and the the leases were rejected in the bankruptcy. And those four venues, two of which in Indiana, one in Saginaw, Michigan, one in Batavia, Illinois, those four collectively represented roughly 25% of the defunct organization's prior revenues. Now that's out of 30. So the top four that we had the good fortune of acquiring represented roughly 25% of the organization's total revenue. So I think we got the pick of the litter, so to speak. But, um, you know, at the same time, I'm aspiring to grow and I'm thinking that uh, this is the time, just like Warren Buffett would tell you, to be greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy. And I'm thinking, well, the time to buy is when everybody's back on their heels, right? Well, um, my bankers thought I was out of my mind. And they're not entirely misguided in that respect. Uh, it did seem out of sorts, but you know, I'm all in. I'm all in and uh, I felt like if this world's gonna come back, if we're gonna have a return to normalcy, then folks still wanna eat out. They still wanna you know, leave their homes to be entertained. And we will be there to offer them a terrific out-of-home experience. And so um, maybe it's uh, misguided bravado, but um, I'm of the opinion that, uh, that folks still aspire to enjoy an out-of-home experience. And that's our job. And we will continue to do it. And hopefully we'll do it in a manner where folks find a compelling value in, in coming to our venues. 
So uh, it was a schizophrenic time. We were juggling. On the one hand, trying to grow. On the other hand, trying to keep the lights on, pay our property taxes while we had zero revenue, cover some debt service, uh, make lease payments. And we were very fortunate. We went into it with a good balance sheet, a lot of cash. And uh, we also are blessed to have some terrific bankers who uh, provided us with financing that really got us through to the first quarter of this year. But at the end of the first quarter, I was faced with a um, perhaps the most difficult thing I've ever had to do in my entrepreneurial career, which is to go back to my investors for a capital call. I was very proud of the fact that since 1996, I'd had the privilege of shepherding other folks' investments without ever calling upon them and saying, I've got a problem and now it's your problem. I always prided myself in avoiding that, but we reached a point where uh, we needed some additional cash infusion. Of course, I put in, but didn't have enough to cover the full exposure that we needed uh, compared to times in the past when I could cover it. But I was so deeply gratified when my investors uh, stepped up. Not only did they fund what was necessary to keep our banks happy, but they also uh, found it in their hearts to fund the additional growth opportunity that we'd identified as well. So, um, you know, as much as this has been a challenging time, it's also been among the most gratifying things that could have ever happened in my business career. Wow. You know, one of the things that strikes me uh, about you, Paul, is that you're never afraid or uncomfortable to admit mistakes. You just you just said, you know, you you misjudged it. You thought it was going to last four to six weeks. And as I was doing my research, you know, that was uh, published in Cranes. You know, you're, you're, you're very comfortable with your leadership and saying, hey, I, I thought it was going to be this. It's going to be something else. How, what advice would you give to leaders who are not as comfortable admitting their mistakes? Were you always that comfortable or was that a skill or, or something that you developed over time? I have very little filter. I'm transparent. Um, and maybe, just maybe, I, because I didn't grow up with privilege, uh, I always think that, you know, if, I, if it all goes away, I won't commit suicide. I'll be perfectly fine. And, um, and so, yeah, I don't bat a thousand. I don't know anyone who really does. And so uh, I'd like to think that's simply a, a demonstration of humanity to recognize that I don't have all the answers. Uh, my word, there are libraries filled with knowledge that I don't possess. And, um, and I think that, um, I think folks are, are inclined to want to rally around people who are, don't hold themselves above others. And I'm not. I mean, the, the truth is this. If you go to one of our theaters and the floor is sticky, that's my problem. And the reason it's my problem is I didn't put the right people in place to do the job for you, but I'm ultimately responsible. You're not going to see me ascribe blame or, or cast aspersions on my teammates. And, and ultimately, I think that's the right answer. I think, you know, folks have to accept responsibility, and I am ultimately responsible here. So um, hopefully when I acknowledge my shortcomings, my uh, failings, it's, it's simply an acknowledgement that, we're all, we're all kind of that way. We're, we're all human. We're all mortals. We have our frailties. 
Did you ever think that people might see that as a weakness? I know there are a lot of leaders out there who are afraid to admit that they don't have all the answers because they don't want to look weak in front of their people. Did you ever, that thought ever cross your mind? Not really. Maybe I'm just fortunate. Uh, maybe I'm obtuse. Maybe it, it never dawned on me. But, um, you know, early in my career, I did work with folks that I thought, you know, had leadership roles, but but demonstrated insecurities. And I thought that, um, you know, their behaviors were, were untoward. It, was, it, it wasn't uh, endearing in any way, shape or form. And so perhaps, you know, we all are a product of what our experience, our background. Uh, and so perhaps I learned that from, from seeing the other side of that coin. Yeah. You know, it took me a long time to learn that, quite frankly, because I grew up in a leadership model where I was told that you sit at the head of the table, you command the agenda, you command the room, you know, you guide the decisions. And it, it took me a long time to realize that that's not really the way to do it. <laughs> you know, here, this might have a fa uh, role in my uh, demeanor as well. I've always had a boss. And, and so because, you know, I had a lengthy career working for others, and because I have investors in the business, I've always felt that I'm accountable to others and that uh, I have to acknowledge when, I'm, when I mis make a misstep or have uh, failed in some way. Because it, it's just a fact that, you know, we, we're not going to bat a thousand. Yeah. Tell me about your thoughts around servant leadership. I know that you presented on that at a Troy Chamber event. Uh, tell me a little bit about your thoughts on servant leadership. Well, I'm a, a big believer that our teammates must be treated with kid gloves. They must, we must tell them and, and truly mean that we care about them because ultimately the most important thing to be a good contributing teammate and imagine is to have empathy for our guests. And so I can't be cruel to my teammates and make their lives miserable and expect them to smile and be gracious to our guests. And so I, I also say that we never know what's going on in somebody else's life. And, you know, when we went through this challenging time last year, I'm, I'm rather proud of some of the things that we did because I think it was, in, was representative of our concern for our teammates. So for example, uh, and again, I wouldn't call it philanthropy. It was enlightened self-interest. Uh, we we never uh, allowed one of our general managers to miss a paycheck because ultimately those folks have institutional knowledge. They know how to run these theaters. You know, you put me at a popcorn machine these days, I'll burn it. You know, so you don't want that. And um, And so we couldn't afford to lose our senior leaders because they know how to run theaters and they do a good, great job doing it. And then with those folks that we ultimately had to furlough, we made the decision to continue to pay 100% of their health insurance, both for they and their family members, without any contribution during the period of time they were laid off. Because I just felt like I didn't want any of them to have to make a decision, do I buy groceries or do I pay for my health insurance? Certainly during a pandemic, we need health insurance. And so I'm, I'm really proud of that. I think it was the right thing to do. Um, and, you know, perhaps it's paying dividends now. We, we haven't lost a single one of our general managers. We, uh, we've largely retained all of our workforce. And, we, and unlike many employers, we're not struggling with, you know, acquiring talent 
like others. And so hopefully it was a, um, a demonstration, but a, but a meaningful one that we genuinely care about the folks who work for us. And, and I do, because again, if I have to care about them in order for them to care about you as my guest. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And that's very much the, the Simon Sinek philosophy too. I'm sure you're familiar with Simon Sinek. Yes. And he believes that if you take care of your people, then they will take care of your clients and your customers. That's, uh, I think it's irrefutable. Mm. And again, I, you know, I can't ask my, my teammates, you know, to, to smile and be gracious to our guests, which is their job. That's the most important thing they can do, be empathetic and kind to our guests. I can't ask them to do that if, if I'm in the back room, you know, using a whip on them. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Paul, let's talk about giving back to the community. Your business is heavily involved in the community and gives back to many different organizations and also you personally. So tell us a little bit about that and what drives you, what motivates you to give so much? You know, at one point I told my friend Marina Houghton that uh, it was a responsibility for those of us who uh, have done well to give back and Marina corrected me, and I've adopted her approach. And her approach is, no, Paul, it's a privilege to give back. And it truly is. I think it's uh, enlightened self-interest uh, in this regard. I think when your guests know, your customers know, that you don't just take from society, but you give back as well, they feel better about doing business with you. And so I recognize that you know, the needs in our society are infinite. The resources are, are limited. But if we can just help one person, then we're doing well. And um, I've taken such great uh, pleasure in seeing, for example, uh, our, our uh, scholarship recipients at Wayne State University, helping them graduate with less debt or no debt, uh, seeing two of our scholarship recipients go on to become very high-flying uh, partners at McKinsey & Company. You know, you want to talk about something, you're thinking, boy, I helped this guy and look at where he is. He's <laughs> head and shoulders above me. And so we've got uh, two of our recipients there. And so, yes, Wayne State holds a, a soft spot in our heart for, for us, my wife, Mary, and me, because we were beneficiaries of a scholarship at Wayne, both of us. And so I, I say that we're on the deferred tuition plan at Wayne. Uh, we're simply paying that tuition now with interest. And uh, hopefully uh, helping those who are coming up behind us. And again, I really do think it's a, it's a privilege. It's not a responsibility. It's a privilege to help those who are less fortunate. Um, we, again, we, when you've had as many blessings as we've enjoyed in our lives, uh, it's, it's, I think it's the least you can do. I, I don't know um, any other way, honestly. I see, uh, we, you know, we talk about Gen Z coming into the workforce. And I see that one of the things that's really important to them is the mission of the company. But I think they're also asking these kinds of questions. You know, what are you doing? What are you doing for the environment? What are you doing for the community? It's not just about the business itself. It, it is about something that's much broader than that. We um, added up between my personal philanthropy, my family's personal philanthropy, and the companies last year during the pandemic. And we had helped over 1,000 organizations. And I'm not to be lauded for that. It's just simply that uh, we have trouble saying no. <laughs> <laughs> but, but again, you know, there, there are so many worthwhile causes. There's so many important missions. And, uh, and so uh, we'd like to be able to help those 
who need a little um, hand up, you know, and those who, um, you know, can uh, benefit from a little bit of economic help and so forth. It's, it's really, it's, I just think it's the right thing to do. Authentic leadership is about living life and leading in accordance with your values. And it seems to me that this is an example of how this is manifesting itself out in the world for you. This is who you are. Yeah, I'm not going to take it with me, am I? <laughs> no, I don't think so. No. And and so if you acknowledge that and, um, you know, again, I'm very fortunate. I'm at a point in my life where there wouldn't be another material possession that would bring me happiness. I have a car. I have a home. I have a boat. I have clothes. And but most importantly, I have a loving family. And so those are the things that are, you know, the loving family is far more important than the other parts of life. And and so if I can share some of the good fortune that we've had with, with those who are less fortunate, then I just think that um, that's a, a value system that uh, that we should all embrace. Yeah. Again, it's clearly an example of authentic leadership when you live your life and you lead in accordance with your values. And it feels it feels good. Feels great. Yeah, I'm a happy guy. Glad, you know, the more I give, the happier I am. And that's what leadership is. It is about how you lead others, but it's how you lead your life. And it should feel good. It should feel great. When we were in the uh, casino, I had everybody with their arms up in the air talking about how great leadership feels like. And I do that because it's fun and it gets people moving. But it really, leadership should really feel that great. You should feel it right down to the core of your being. Well, well can you think of any other privilege, any greater privilege I mean, it, it truly is a privilege to to be able to lead an organization like this and have so many wonderful people uh, associated with it, all of whom are dedicated to serving our guests. You know, again, I talked about this on multiple occasions, how lucky I am. Look, and I am. I'm just incredibly fortunate to have this wonderful team, to have uh, so enjoyed some economic success that we can share with those who are less fortunate uh, and to... Uh, you know, again, have the most important thing, which is a, a loving, healthy family. You know, leadership touches, you, you touch people's lives. And I think a lot of leaders today, sometimes they underestimate the power that they have. Because you can, you can make somebody feel good in the workplace, which translates directly into their home life. And now, of course, you know, the lines are, are blurred even more. It's an awesome responsibility, and I think when people realize that they are there to serve others and that they can have such a dramatic impact on somebody else's life, it switches their perspective on leadership. Without question. Our, uh, our most recent policy trailer uh, focuses on our teammates and what Imagine meets them, uh, focuses on some media personalities and what Imagine represents to them, and it's very touching to me to think that uh, this organization has had a meaningful impact on their lives. Let's talk about technology and innovation. Lots of business leaders out there today struggling with this idea of embracing technology and innovation. I see many business leaders say, oh, we're an innovative company, but yet they're referring to maybe a product and they assign that to an individual or a group. They don't truly embrace innovation in every facet of the business. 
you are known and you have a reputation of being at the forefront of technology and innovation in the business that you're in. How, how did you do that? And what advice would you give to other leaders out there who are trying to get their arms around new technology? I mean, it's a leap, right? You have to take a leap and you don't have all the answers. So tell us, what does that feel like? Well, you've heard the adage that uh, necessity is the mother of all invention. Um, I'll tell you a little anecdote. When we opened our first new build theater, it was in 1997. And it was on a Saturday night just after we opened that the Detroit Red Rings won their first Stanley Cup in 42 years. There was not a soul in that theater. And you want to talk about a guy who was forlorn. I literally cried driving home that night. And while driving home that night, I concluded that if folks wanted to see hockey, then by golly, we'll show them hockey. We won't show them movies. And so my evolution into technology, like digital presentation, for example, grew out of um, my shortcoming by not recognizing that what we should be is a full entertainment venue, that we should offer folks on the screen what they want to see, not what I want to show them. So we rented a digital projector the following year for the Stanley Cup playoffs. And of course, the Red Wings um, again won the Stanley Cup. And that put us in a position where we were very much leaders in digital technology. At one time, we had uh, prototype uh, 1.2K digital projectors. This is before the industry had developed all of its uh, standards and so forth. And, and so I literally sort of evolved into it. And then we, uh, we, we were well positioned then to become the first in the world to adopt all digital project- projection technology. And I wouldn't tell you that I think our guests really care if it's digital or analog. They, they want, a, you know, a sharp, clear picture. Or they want great sound. And we've done that with, you know, with laser projection, with uh, Dolby Atmos sound, with um, 4K projection and so forth. But I would say that, again, it's, it's really just driven by an intense desire to try to serve our customers' needs and expectations because I don't think there's really a lot of room for mediocrity in the world of commerce these days. You're either going to be good at what you do or you're going to be left by the side of the road under our economic system. So um, I didn't have a vision. You can't you know, look at me and say, well, Paul, you were the first in the world to do all digital technology. You're a genius. No. You know what it was driven by? It was driven by the fact that the studios were subsidizing the transition to digital cinema. And I felt like the deals weren't going to get any better. So I better get in early. <laughs> I got in early. I was the first. <laughs> <laughs> that was not the answer I was expecting to hear. Well, but there it is. That's it. I'm, you know, finance guy, accountant. So <laughs> the deals aren't getting any better. Let's get in while we can. Yeah, yeah. But still, it was a commitment. It was a huge commitment to make. It was, and you know why? Because uh, we were really on the bleeding edge at the time. Uh, there weren't enough digital. Uh, prints. So we had both dual projection systems in every one of our 46 auditoriums. We had a mechanical projector and we had a digital projector because you didn't know if a particular film was available in digital or not. And so we probably incurred more costs than later adopters did. But uh, there was a time, and this is kind of fascinating, that we had more digital projectors per capita in the state of Michigan than any other state in the union, let alone the world, because my, uh, my Michigan-based competitors all decided they wanted to keep up with me. 
<laughs> and that was fun. So Michigan really led the way with digital projection. Ah, uh, interesting. And then, of course, you uh, you ended up in the Wayne State Innovation Hall of Fame. Was that part of that? Um, I yes, I understand they're going to be honoring me on the fifteenth of October uh, as an entrepreneur for for life time achievement. So I'm um, deeply honored by that. You know, it's my alma mater, and um, I'm in some really good company. I mean, I'm not sure I really belong in that class, but uh, it's it's very gracious of them to think about me that way. Well, and that's I think that's part of your leadership style. You are quite humble. You know, you you certainly don't come across as this big ego CEO. And I think that's part of your charm, if I may say so. <laughs> well, thank you. I like the idea of being charming as opposed to being a big ego, ego guy. Yeah, right, right. I'm not sure what a big ego does for you. It doesn't do a lot, does it? I, I think it does nothing for you. I, I, if it, if it um, deters people from... Um, sharing their thoughts with you and being transparent with you, then I think it, it really works to your detriment. It repels people. And when I talk about gravitas as being the hallmark of authentic leadership, authentic leadership is all about bringing people into you. And that's all about warmth and making people feel safe so they can make decisions, so that they can feel good about what they're doing. They can feel good about your leadership, your company, and yes, your customer. You know, and, and I recognize that not everyone, as I said, how many times, but they're not going to bat a thousand either. We're all going to make mistakes. And, and then it just becomes a question of what do you do thereafter? And I find that oftentimes when you stumble in some way, but if you acknowledge it and make, make it right, that your customers are, you know, more than happy to forgive you. And so um, I, uh, I'd like to, you know, continue the theme of if we if we can't serve you well, then what can we do to make it right? If we, you know, if we can't make it right, we're not going to take your money. We'll give you all your money back. Whatever we can possibly do, I, I think it's our responsibility to serve our guests effectively, serve them well, because I believe that all success in business is born out of serving one's customer. You know, the the financial results come naturally. I think if you have raving guests, if you've got guests who just love your product. They tell their friends. And so the most important thing is that we embrace our guests, we give them an exemplary experience, and, and treat them like the, the, the princes, the kings, the princesses they are, because without them, we have nothing. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. You know, I have the same situation with my investors. You know, as a guy who didn't come from a moneyed background, without the capital that our investors have so graciously uh, bestowed upon us, we'd have nothing. And so I am I'm truly a grateful guy. I, I think I've been very, very fortunate in my life and, and, um, and think that um, most all my success is, is really the result of others' contributions. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, let's talk a little bit about the future. You know, the, the pandemic was hard. And yes, you showed tremendous resilience and you're coming through it. But it also opened up this whole new realm of the virtual world that many businesses didn't really embrace because they, they didn't want to. You know, it was sort of part of the, the routine and the mold that you would get on a plane and go visit somebody and go visit a plant or, or visit an, uh, an office that was out of state or out of the country. 
And now we've all had to embrace this virtual technology. So we're a lot more comfortable with that now than we ever were before. So I have to believe that that starts to open up some opportunity for you in the business world. You know, I think so. Um, And we touched on it when uh, I saw it at the Detroit Economic Club Young Leaders event, that perhaps there's an opportunity to do smaller congregate events where there could be a speaker, where there could be uh, some type of event going on at a particular locale, but it's broadcast to smaller venues or venues all over the country, all over the world, where folks would come together in smaller groups, not require the travel and so forth. And so we're very fortunate we... um, are doing business with uh, two terrific companies that are involved in distributing content to theaters around the country and around the world. And, and that's part of their vision. They believe that they can take live entertainment and present it in environments like ours, uh, where maybe it's even uh, two-way communication. So, uh, you know, technology, as you know, it has been a hallmark of our business. And we uh, have embraced that. We're you know, we've got fiber optics leading into every one of our buildings. And so with fiber optic lines, we can show live events with no pixelization. It can be live. It could be two-way communication. And so um, I think I think there, there are more opportunities available to folks like me that have venues than folks realize. Yeah, I love that idea. I see the global corporate meeting being presented and uh, in one location and then many, many other locations around the country. People actually go to that location so they have the theater experience. They're not at home watching on Zoom. You know, it's a much better immersive type of experience. I absolutely agree with you. Um, as much as we've all become accustomed to Zoom and, you know, uh, sitting in front of our computers at home, I think there's still value in congregate activities, and especially uh, if, if folks are feeling comfortable with a smaller group as opposed to an enormous group, um, we'd like to be there to uh, to be able to avail that opportunity to them. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that the future is tremendously exciting in the world of uh, audio, in the world of audio and visual. And uh, part of my passion, as you well know, is podcasting, because I believe that audio is a great way to get the message out to people, not only externally, but internally to your own employees. And people want, they want people to speak in a human to human language. We don't, we, people don't like corporate speak. I know that we have a lot of people out there, and I hate to, I don't mean to offend them, but there's a lot of people that spend their lives and their careers crafting the message, right? It's all about crafting the message. And I remember when I did my global meetings, it was all, oh, well, you know, it's got to go through communications. We got to make sure that the message is consistent. And then by the time you got to do the call, there was always a technical problem with the Zoom link or something. And you had to do three calls because there were three regions you were trying to cover globally. And it was just, oh, it was just so much pain and agony. And I think that, you know, number one, we've embraced this virtual world much more now after the pandemic. And the technology is there to do it. But people need to do it. My fear, Paul, is that people are going to go back. They're going to want to go back to their comfort zone and they want people back in the office. They want to be back in command and control because that's maybe how they were successful in their role. And that gives them comfort and security. 
So for those people who who want to go back to the way it was before the pandemic and not really embrace the virtual world and make it work with interactive experiences in make this working world really transform it, um, what would you say to those leaders that were reluctant to, to embrace this new world? My um, junior high counselor said something to me that I still remember, change or be changed. And so those, those words resonate with me. And, you know, a uh, company I recently worked for up until just three and a half years ago, one of their adages was the only constant is change. And so if we don't embrace change, if we don't recognize that there are perhaps better ways to do business, better ways to serve guests, serve customers, uh, I think we're doomed to failure. And so uh, I think we have to listen intently to what, what people are saying. We obviously, you know, everyone's going to have a slightly different opinion and so forth. But uh, I, I think we have to uh, be fearless when it comes to looking into the future. We have to determine, are we going to be a survivor or not? You know, a lot of the things that we've done in our theaters, folks say, oh, you've been such an innovator. You've done wonder. Oh, this is great. Candidly, I, I think everything we've done has been largely driven by the need to survive. Either we're going to do this and do it right, or again, I think our economic system will will deal with it. And it and you don't have to look far to see uh, organizations in my industry that have failed, uh, even failed before the pandemic. And um, I, maybe fear has been a great motivator in my business life. Not that again that I, you know, going to lose some material possessions. You know, I've got all the material possessions I could ever want for at this point in my life. But uh, but I don't want to fail. I don't want to fail my teammates. I don't want to fail my investors. I don't want to fail our customers. And so I'm, I'm driven to serve them. Leaders out there who are doing everything they can to go back to the way it was before the pandemic, looking at your business and the way it was before the pandemic, is there one business process or practice that you've shed that you are glad that it's gone away and you don't want to go back to? We got rid of our bad um, smartphone app. <laughs> you know, if you want to talk about something that was an embarrassment to me, you know how as apps get ratings, you know, stars and so forth. I think we had a two out of five rating for our app and that pained me greatly. And so I was delighted when we uh, were able to bring forth our, our new app that allows you not just to book your film, your showtime, but also to buy your food and beverage right on that uh, same smartphone app. And then uh, the goal is to bring your food and beverage right to your seat. So we've taken this a long way, I think. You know, if you go back to when I started in the industry, first of all, there was no computer to be found. But then even when there were computers, you stood in line at the box office, you stood in line to buy your food and beverage, You then you queued up to race into the auditorium to get your favorite seat. Now, you don't have to do any of that stuff. Make a few taps on your smartphone, show up earlier, show up late. We're gonna, your seat's gonna be there. And that's really an enhancement to the quality experience. And 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 so folks, again, you you've Paul, you've been wonderful. No, I haven't. I, I did what was the expectation of the marketplace because everything has gotten easier through technology, right? So I think we're uh, we're really just doing what we need to do to continue to think about the best interests of our guests and our and our owners. Mm. But there you are again. So you you're saying about your app, right? That hey, it was it was awful, right? And you've had to improve it. I love the way that you 
you just so openly it just you you will admit these these problems um and put it out on the table and i have to believe that the people that work for you find that very empowering because you're then giving them permission to do the same of course you know and i i am a big believer that when you put the interests of others ahead of your own inevitably both parties are very successful and uh and so yeah i i uh tasked our ceo with developing a new smartphone app and he's shepherded it right through it's magnificent it um uh, he was showing it to me today we've tested it out it works and it continues to improve so uh i'd like to believe that there is room for continuous improvement in every industry including ours Paul we've talked about authentic leadership and uh, you saw the keynote at the uh, Motor City Casino Gravitas is the hallmark of authentic leadership to me it is that ultimate quality that just draws people into you what is gravitas to you it's um solemnity it's 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 competence it's um maybe leading with um conviction and uh but recognizing you don't have all the answers and incorporating the views and the input of others to help you form a better organization yes well you display uh, almost all of the qualities of an authentic leader there's no doubt about that but the resilience that the, there's a few that stand out in my mind resilience is one clearly given what you've been through The second one is warmth and the ability to generate trust around and anybody that interacts with you. Um and and your conviction. Like you say, you know this this you are bound and determined that you are going to do something. You don't have all the answers and you're open to admitting your mistakes and you give people permission to do the same making a very safe environment. That's that's just simply how i roll <laughs> i guess i wish i could say something more eloquent but i but i think what you've just articulated is absolutely how i'd like to be perceived mm. and um i'd like to our business to be perceived as one that is absolutely dedicated to to and serving its serving its customers i mean i i don't know what else to do it's my job as a businessman right if i don't serve my customers somebody else will You you seem like a little surprised that I'm asking you these these questions. I can see the look on your face. Uh, obviously our audience can't because this is a podcast. But I I get the sense that you're thinking, you know, what well, doesn't doesn't everybody lead this way? Why isn't this intuitively obvious? Am I just putting words in your mouth or is there something No, you you you've uh, read my body language correctly. Okay. That's exactly right. I'm thinking, no, I don't think I'm doing anything really that special. Like, why is she asking me this? Yeah, Doesn't everybody do this? Yeah, I, that's kind of the way I'm thinking about it. Jan, I'm thinking this is this is how, is there any other way to do this and do it effectively? I don't know that there is. I mean, and again, I surely don't have all the answers and um I've certainly made my share of mistakes. We've talked about those. We have plenty more we could cover today. But um but yeah I'm comfortable in my own skin particularly at this age and feel like um you know you can't hurt my feelings and um but but again if I if I just I I'm not thinking about myself I'm thinking about others and then it's so much easier I think to to move along in life when you say well why why are you getting up today Paul I'm getting up today because I'm not just serving popcorn and showing movies 
I, I think honestly, our business is a slightly higher calling in that I think we're genuinely bringing an element of escapism to people who have got busy lives and who have smartphones ringing and dinging. And to take someone and give them two or three hours of immersive pleasure away from the day-to-day thoughts of life, I think we're really helping humanity and enhancing the quality of life in the communities we serve. And that's that's the way I'd like to think about our business. Yes, yeah, it's it's very much mission driven. There's there's no two ways about it. And going back to your your surprise at some of my questions, I believe that we've got to do more of this type of conversation where people can listen to extremely successful businessmen like yourself and hear you talk about authentic leadership. This is how you practice leadership. This is what leadership is. And if we can start to change that mindset, then we can, to use my favorite term that I love to use, we can break the mold. And my concern, Paul, is that if we don't, then we are not going to be able to attract Gen Z. Millennials are in the workforce for the most part. It's about Gen Z. Yes, I agree. And if the leadership model doesn't change from the leadership model of the past into a more authentic leadership style, then uh, there, will be, there will be no business. The businesses will, will have a very limited life. Well, we see that with, uh, you know, the shortage in the workforce today. I mean, workforce participation is, is really not strong. I'd like to see it much stronger. And uh, if, if better leadership would, would attract more people to participate in the workforce, then that's a worthy calling in and of itself. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I'm going to take a turn into the personal realm. And I love to ask my guests this question because I think it goes right to the heart of mindset and how you set up your day. So how do you start your day? I am the least regimented guy in the world. And and that's not typical, I think, for, for a lot of leaders. Uh, so sometimes I roll out of bed early. Sometimes I roll out of bed late. And I hate routine. And so uh, the more varied, the more activities I can put in one day, the better. So, um, you know, I, I know people who are very disciplined and I admire them greatly. Like I have a, an investor who uh, uh, for many years was probably the single best salesperson offering copiers and fax machines in the United States. Most disciplined man I've ever seen up at 5 a.m. planning his calls, making his cold calls, doing all these things. I'm the farthest thing from that. I'm just, you know, get out of bed, take a look. What do we, what do we plan for today? What do we got to do? And so it's just, you know, roll with it. And I, I'm really comfortable with that. I'm not a guy who likes routine. Um, and, and so um, that's uh, probably not the characteristic you were thinking about. <laughs> but that's just it, right? So in your mind, there is no mold that you're trying to fit in terms of what a CEO should be like or a senior business leader should be like. You know, this is not, there isn't a mold that you're trying to fit. You are who you are and, and you're okay with that. Yes, that's correct. I'm, and, and sometimes I'm sleepy head, <laughs> sleep in if my schedule allows but, I, but I'm also pretty industrious, as you might expect. I mean, uh, put in a lot of hours throughout my career and still happy to work hard. Um, but, uh, but regimentation and um, uh, fixed schedule is really the farthest thing from my, 
<laughs> for my life because you're right, there isn't a mold around my life these days. I'm really glad to hear you say that because you're right. A lot of people say, you know, they get up at five and they work out and they do yoga and they do this and they do that and then they um, do meditation and all kinds of things before they start the day. And that's okay. And there's no right or wrong. There's no judgment here. They're just, you know, you're just the human. This is how you want to start your day. Some things work for some people. They don't work for others. And I have to admit, I struggle with consistency, um, and routine. In, in some cases, I like a routine, but then I like to change it, which sounds a little weird, but I love to live, I live in the creative space. I love to create. And sometimes that energy can take me into a late night. And sometimes it will force me to get up early in the morning. And so if there's too much of a, of a routine around me, I find that a bit restrictive. But if I don't have something that keeps me to somewhat of a routine, then I'm likely to slide off into some, go down some rabbit hole and start focusing on something and, and it has no relevance to anything. So I think I'm a bit of a mix, actually, of I like a routine, but I also still like to, I, I'm in that creative space. That's, that's who I am. I don't want to be constrained by all these routines. I'm with you. And sometimes um, I can be up working at midnight, 1am. It just, it really just depends on what's What's pressing? What's required? And um, it was probably a bad habit I developed in school, but um, I like to do stuff when there's a real deadline looming. I do too. I do too. I work much better right close to the edge to it of it. Yeah, yeah that's, that happens to be my uh, my modus operandi. When I can, uh, when I know something's got to get done, you got to get it done by by this. There's your deadline. Okay, <laughs> yeah. now I can perform. So. I think I uh, perform well under pressure, and uh, and fear is a great motivator. So uh, those things uh, keep me keep me rolling. <laughs> and then when that's over, I can sleep. <laughs> oh, that's great. Good. Well, I have to tell you, it has been an absolute pleasure talking leadership with you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're most welcome. It's been a pleasure being with you, Jan. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for listening to the Automotive Leaders Podcast. Click the listen link in the show notes to subscribe for free on your platform of choice. And don't forget to download the 21 Traits of Authentic Leadership PDF by clicking on the link below. And remember, stay true to yourself, be you, and lead with gravitas, the hallmark of authentic leadership.